Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in General History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts on the channel, Dr. Randa Melcher, um, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing the three authors of the book titled African Football Migration, Aspirations, Experiences and Trajectories, published by Manchester University Press in 2022, which captures and chronicles the goals, experiences, um, and what actually happens to uh, Africans who are hoping to pursue football as this particularly highly prized form of transnational migration. Um, There are quite a lot of Africans that do end up migrating um, outside the continent, and some of them become incredibly successful this season. For example, in the English Premier League, uh, Liverpool has Mo Salah and Sadio Mane. Um, But as the book details, there's a lot of complexity um, that goes into these kind of honestly quite rare success stories. And um, this book uncovers and traces the different actors, networks, and institutions that actually impact the ability of young people to realize these dreams. So I'm very pleased today to be speaking with Dr. Paul Darby, Dr. James Essen, and Dr. Christian Ungri about their book. Welcome. Thanks, Miranda. Uh, Thanks very much for the, the invitation. Thank you, Miranda. So I was hoping we could start off, please, um, with you each sort of introducing yourselves um, and sort of your backgrounds and kind of what brought you then together to write this book. So perhaps we can start off with Paul, please. Okay, well, I'm I'm a reader in the sociology of sport at Ulster University, um, which is based in, in Northern Ireland. And amongst other research interests, I've, I've been working on various aspects of African football for almost 25 years now. Um, That makes me feel very old. Um, But I I suppose this work stems back to my PhD, which focused on the development and politics of African football within the context of FIFA, which is, of course, the game's world governing body. And and I was particularly interested in the, the relationship between FIFA's African and European constituencies, 
And as part of this, I began to develop an interest in the migration of African football players into the, the European game. And I think my, my first publication in this field was uh, way back in, in 2000. And I've continued working in this, this area ever since. And that, is, that has culminated in the, in the book. But I suppose in, in terms of how the the three of us came together to write the book, our our paths had crossed intermittently at conferences, and we'd also reached out to one another on occasion for um, help with with some field work that we were doing in predominantly in Ghana. And we we were obviously also aware of one another's work in this field. I I had certainly followed. James and Christian's publications um, very closely, not least, of course, because they made some um, critical observations about some of my early publications in, in the field. So we had sort of been, I guess, indirectly sharing ideas and different perspectives for a while. But I think it was around maybe um, 2017 that James and I began to talk about um, about writing a book that that combined our disciplinary perspectives and, and that also kind of captured the whole career trajectory of African migrant footballers as as well of course as those aspiring players who who didn't make it or who didn't become transnationally mobile. So we we put together a proposal uh, Manchester University Press liked the idea um, we got the contract and, and shortly afterwards we approached Christian to come on board to add his anthropological perspective and, and also his his really nuanced and shrewd insights into the experiences of African players in Europe and Southeast Asia both during and after their playing careers. Um, so so that that basically um, set us off on the process um, when we when we got the contract we had planned to do some additional field work but of course covid curtailed all of that um, various deadlines for the submission of the manuscript uh, came and went but I, I suppose in the second half of uh, 2020 we the, the three of us really knuckled down in terms of of the writing process and we we submitted the manuscript in February of 2021 after periods of, of lockdown homeschooling our young children and, and very long nights I have to say and and here we are um, talking about the finished product wonderful um thank you James do you want to introduce yourself a bit yeah thank you Miranda um, so Paul pretty much nailed it there in terms of how the book came to be. So I'll just say a little bit about my background and how I kind of came to end up looking at this this topic area. So Paul's been very humble there in the sense that, you know, I first started working on this around 2009, 2010. Um, my particular interest, as I'm a geographer, a human geographer, is in migration and, and demography. And I was very interested in human trafficking and the trafficking of West African youth within the football industry. But in trying to understand the phenomenon, I came across a lot of Paul's work. And Paul is, uh, yeah, is one of the, the leading scholars in this area. There aren't many of us, to be fair, who look at this, this topic area, but Paul's definitely one of those leading kind of scholars. And as Paul said, I read his work, a little bit critical here and there. Um, we met at conferences and, and various events. And we just, we realised that there was, it wasn't a gap, because I don't think we thought of it as, there's a gap in the literature that needs to be filled. We thought that we could actually make a contribution um, to not just scholarship on sport migration, but scholarship on migration, the experience of African um, migrants more broadly. 
Um, and I think for me, that's one of the key key drivers for this book is that I think that we use football as a way to understand some far more complex um, processes and facing migrants in contemporary times. Um, so that's a little bit about me and my background and kind of how the book came to be. But I think Paul's right that COVID definitely curtailed a few of our, our ideas, but we might talk about some of those points later on in the interview. The book uh, covers a lot of ground, both in terms of time, space, uh, different kinds of goals, different player trajectories. Um, and in some ways, you sort of introduce all of these different aspects kind of at once at the beginning and then spend the book unpicking it and sort of then weaving it back together, which I think was a really interesting way to kind of get into the details of the different aspects, but also understand from the beginning how they all go together. Um, And the way you introduce this right at the beginning is through the story of one particular footballer. So can you maybe introduce us a little bit to the story and explain kind of why you started the book with this in-depth vignette? Yeah, sure. So, um, so as you say, Miranda, we, we we opened the book with a a fairly detailed biographical vignette of a, a former Ghanaian migrant player called Lee Lamptey, and we 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 did this for a number of reasons. Um, the, the the first, and I suppose the primary one, was that we we very much wanted the book to focus in on the aspirations, experiences, and, and career trajectories of, of African migrant players. So to adopt a, a kind of a, a player-centric approach to our analyses. And, and we also wanted to ensure that the, the voices and perspectives of these players, these migrant players, were prominent throughout the whole book. So we, we, we just thought that a, a, a detailed overview of one player's career right at the start of the book would be a good way of, of illustrating this general point. And we we also felt that Neil Lamptey's career was a, an ideal case study because, as, as you say, it reflected many of the themes that we wanted to explore in the book. So just to give you a little bit of background um, quite quickly on Lamptey. So in the early 1990s, Neil Lamptey was without doubt one of the highest profile African migrant players in Europe. Um, he he had represented Ghana at the under 16 World Youth Championship in 1989 as a 14-year-old. And Pelle, the great Brazilian player, had seen him play and had identified him as his natural successor. So big praise. Um, so from there, he, he moved to Anderlecht in Belgium uh, at the age of 15. And a year later, he won a World Cup with Ghana's under-17 team. And in the process, he finished as the joint top goal scorer. So in the early 1990s, you, you could say that he had the whole of the footballing world at his feet. He was he was destined for, for great things. But his career didn't go to plan for a whole variety of reasons. And I suppose we, we were very interested in, in making sense of uh, of Lamptey's career trajectory. So Christian and I, before we started working together in the book, Christian and I interviewed Lamptey on separate occasions um, where he talked about his whole career arc. He, he, he talked to us at length about his his childhood, um, the significance of football in his life, the opposition of family members to his involvement in the game, which was quite surprising for us, how he first entered into the European football industry, the sort of networks and institutions that he came into contact with, 
but also the exploitation that he experienced, some of his struggles in terms of adapting to life in Europe and the demands of professional football, um, the racism that he encountered, personal tragedies, but also the thing that kind of that loomed large in our conversations with him was the sort of remarkable tenacity and resilience and agency that he had exhibited during his career in, in what is a, a fairly ruthless industry. And, and he also spoke um, at length about what he had done after his player career had ended. So uh, the, the interview that I conducted with, with Lamptey um, took place in, in February of 2008, and, and Christian interviewed him a couple of years later, which, as I say, was obviously long before we had even considered working together and, and writing a, a collaborative book. But, but when we were fleshing out, of, uh, fleshing out the proposal and thinking about how we might start the book, we sort of kept coming back to Lamptey's story. And, and as I say, we quickly realized that many of the key themes and issues that we wanted to explore were very much encapsulated in his story. So we we felt that expanding on Lamptey's kind of career trajectory would be a would be an interesting and fairly vivid way of of identifying and teasing out are foregrounding the sorts of themes that we wanted to explore in the book. And hopefully those who, who read the book will, will agree with us on that front. So um, after sort of introducing all of these themes in uh, the story of Lamptey, we then sort of kind of backtrack and understand uh, where we are today by sort of looking at football in historically, um, which is certainly something I personally didn't really know anything about. And to be honest, hadn't thought that much about um, in terms of the linkages. So would you mind introducing us a bit about what we should know about football in Africa historically in, under, in order to understand more recent football and football migration in Africa? Um, again, perhaps starting with Paul? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, first off, Miranda, that, that's a, a really a really great question. And I, I like the way that you frame it, that we, in order to understand um, a particular phenomena today, we need to understand how it has developed uh, historically. And I suppose, I mean, th that question is one that I, as a, a sociologist, um, often start with in any project that I, I work on. And I suppose... I'm kind of motivated in that sense by um, C. Wright Mills, um, the late great uh, American sociologist, um, author of The Sociological Imagination, who, who argued that an historical sensitivity was absolutely fundamental to, to any sociological research. And, and, and he argued that in order to understand kind of contemporary social problems or, or social processes that it was it was crucial to understand how these processes or problems have have changed and evolved over time um, so for me as a, a sociologist it, it seemed a, a perfectly natural starting point to try to locate contemporary forms of african football migration in their historical context um, so in in the book we uh, think uh, maybe in chapter two or one of the earlier chapters, we, we set out the origins and development of this process in, in the colonial era, um, particularly from the 1930s onwards. And we, we chart its, its growth in the immediate post-colonial period and then, of course, map out its more contemporary forms from the, the turn of the millennium. And I, I think all of this helped us to set out 
some, I suppose, continuities in African football migration over an extended period of time, but but also to identify some discontinuities and, and how the the transnational mobilities and the, the aspirations of African football players were impacted by first of all by broader social change and and also changes in the football industry in particular uh, time periods um, and and as I say all all of that detail is 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 in the book um, where we 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 kind of we we explore the evolution of of this process over over an extended period of time um, and I I'm not sure if you want me to go into any of the detail or if if, if you're happy enough with with leaving things there or maybe James would like to come in. Well, Paul, I think you 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 really touch on an important point and one that. I, I keep returning to myself in terms of just thinking through that how that longer history is impacting what we and shaping what we see today. And one history that I think the well actually I know the book teases out really powerfully from start to finish actually is the, the legacy of empire and colonialism. Um, and I don't think we, it, it can be understated how much colonialism and empire did shape um, football and football migration in Africa and, and the trends and patterns we're seeing today in terms of player movements. And one thing that that the book I think does very very well is that it tries to move beyond the kind of the simplification that you know people from former Pol- um, Portuguese colonies went to Portugal, people from former French colonies went to go to France. We kind of show how, to some extent, that's kind of true, but actually, when you dig a bit deeper, it's far more complicated. And then you start to see how contemporary migration regimes and historical ones have implications of where players are able to go. So, for example, if we think about the United Kingdom context, that colonial narrative about player movement doesn't really work so well because actually for a long period in t- a period of time um, British um, football clubs didn't see former colonies as um, and the colonies at the time when they were, were colonized as a, a source of playing talent the, the players were not seen in that way um, whereas if you think about Lucifer and maybe Francophone context where they had different colonial discourses about who can and cannot be a citizen you know it, it did shape player migration but at the same time, when you look a little bit deeper, and as we do in the book, delve through these different narratives and trajectories, you start to see how these overarching kind of meta-narratives don't always hold true when you look into the players' lives and the different directions they take and how actually a meeting with one individual agent can drastically change the life course of the player and confound those more more dominant narratives about where players end up. So, yeah, I think for me the, the history is really important. And as I said, empire, colonialism, we really kind of tease those 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 histories through, um, but we also kind of problematize these kind of meta narratives that you know the default answer is that empire did this, colonialism did that. Actually, it's far more nuanced and complex. Thank you for bringing that in, and um, I think that is very much sort of the direction um, of my next few questions. A sort of okay, we have this basic historical understanding. Obviously, the book does go into more detail, um, and we do have these meta narratives running around, um, but. I kind of want to sort of start digging into some of the specifics. So when we talk about African um, footballers migrating outside of Africa to play football, how many players are we sort of talking about? And how many different places are they going? Yeah, I mean, the, the first thing to say about that question, Miranda, is is that it's, it's really difficult to be um, completely accurate about the exact numbers of 
African footballers who have moved abroad and, and specifically to pursue a football career or indeed to, to map out their points of origin or, or destination. I mean, one of the reasons why uh, that is that is a difficult task is because, is because it's important to recognise that African football migration as, as a process also encompasses irregular hidden forms of, of migration. And, and that, that is a theme that, that, we, that we explore in the book and that James's work in particular has examined. So maybe he, he'll come in on, on that issue shortly. But in, in terms of, um, I mean, we, we, we anticipated that that would be a question that our readers would, would have. So we, we were committed to try and provide um, some detail in terms of the contemporary nature of African football migration. And, and we were really helped by a fantastic online atlas that was um, that's produced by the International Centre for Sports Studies. So essentially what the what the, the atlas does, as I say, it's, a, it's an online tool and it, and it maps the international flow of players in around 150 leagues across almost 100 different national football associations, including the majority of African federations. So its scope is is really quite impressive, but it, it still gives us only a partial view, which of course is one of the other reasons why we can't be completely accurate in terms of quantifying and mapping um, African football migration. But but nonetheless, it, it is the most comprehensive source that we have for, for doing this. And um, I, I spent a, a fair bit of time with, with the Atlas, um, which I, I quite enjoyed. I'm, I'm a bit of an anorak in, in that regard. And that, that allowed us to, to kind of tease out um, or to, to give the reader a sense of, of the numbers of African expatriate players, um, their points of origin, and also their, their, their points of, of destination. So, I mean, just, just very quickly to give you some, I suppose, headline details. So, as of May 2020, which is when we the, the, the last point at which the Atlas was, was available, there were just over 2,000 African expatriate players playing professionally across the almost 150 leagues that were listed in the Atlas. 70% um, of these players healed from West Africa, which is why much of the book focuses on the West African context. And the five primary exporting countries are, in this order, Nigeria, Ghana, Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, and Mali. And of course, Cameroon is also a prominent exporter of football talent. Um, in terms of the, 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 the destinations for, for these players, um, Europe remains the primary importer and indeed is, is the preferred destination for I would say the vast majority of aspiring African football players, um, and most of them aspire to move to one of the big five leagues in England, Spain, Germany, Italy, and France. Um, and, and France is the, the 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 French league is is particularly attractive for for African migrant players, and and it accounts for for fifty seven percent. So, Paul, you've kind of given us an, the overview of this atlas, which does sound quite cool. I probably would have also spent loads of time with it um, and kind of where players go. Um, but, James, can you tell us a bit about kind of 
these numbers tell us some things, but they're not perfect as methods are, are they? No, no, Miranda. I think the the observatory is fantastic in the sense that it's quite good at mapping what we could look at and say it's quite formal forms of player movements because you know they're able to look at clubs, registrations, and get quite precise numbers. But as, as you kind of hinted, that hides far more than it reveals. So, for example, Paul just said that there's approximately about 2,000 African expatriate players who are, who are listed as part of the Atlas. But in 2015, so it's a few years earlier than the latest Atlas, but hopefully this example will give you some context for something I'm going to try and explain. Um, a charity in France, Foot Solidaire, that looks at human trafficking in football, so irregular forms of migration, estimated there were 15,000 young players moved out to West Africa each year under false pretenses. So these are players where perhaps an agent approaches them and says, if you give me 2,000 euros, I'll get you a trial at Paris Saint-Germain. They get to Paris and there is no trial. So Futsaladera is saying there's 15,000 um, of these players moving out of just West Africa um, each year. And we're saying there's 2,000 um, players recorded in, in the Atlas. Can you see how that's a bit discombobulating, right, Miranda? That does uh, obscure rather a lot, yes. It, it does. So, so for me, that raises some interesting methodological questions um, in terms of, you know, so one of the quotes that Soledad shared in this article from 2015 is that, I'll read out the quote in full, some 15,000 young players are moved out of West Africa each year under false pretenses, estimates the charity Foot Solidaire. But a lack of monitoring means the numbers of boys being trafficked abroad could be far higher. So for me, this raises a really interesting question where we've got this number of 15,000, but we're being told there's lack of monitoring, yet the numbers could be far higher. So, so what's going on here? And I think the conundrum that many of us face when we work on irregular forms of migration is that we're dealing with hidden populations, populations that are often very hard to, to contact, to reach, because in many cases, they want to remain hidden. Um, so many of the, the players who come to Africa, um, as we document from Africa, as we document in the book, to Europe, for example, may come on tourist visas or may come under the, um, an educational study visa in order to pursue a career in football. Now, when that career in football maybe doesn't materialize immediately, they choose to then stay on in, in, or in a destination country, context in Europe. They therefore go under the radar. Yeah? So they may play football for a semi-professional club, maybe even a professional club, but it's, it's quite rare for that to happen. So they, as I said, they go under the radar but they're still on the periphery of the football industry. So for, for me personally, as a scholar, it's been quite fascinating trying to reach the, these groups and working with organisations like Foot Solidaire, as an example, to, to contact and, and reach these young players. But again, it's you're dealing with hidden populations and the scale of what we're dealing with is hard to really comprehend. Um, so I hope, Miranda, that gives a bit of additional nuance to, to Paul's answer. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to sort of see both sides of it um, and to kind of give hopefully listeners some insight into the complexities of what your book delves into um, showing sort of the formal methods of migration for football um, but also a number of informal and also kind of mixed ways where there's a lot of different sort of maybe you're formally migrating through this method for six months and then something changes etc so I think we want to get into some of more of those details um, in the next few questions um, starting I think with the more formal side of things which you examine your case study of Ghana um, and as you as Paul's already mentioned that's one of the top fo- football um, player exporting countries in West Africa in Africa generally um, so can you maybe tell us about these football academies and how they focus on developing African labour for a global market? 
um, but how this runs into challenges both at home and abroad in terms of sort of professionalization, scaling, system development, um, that sort of thing. So I don't know if Paul or James, which of you wants to go first, um, but I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about your case studies of Ghanaian football academies. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to, to kick off on, on that, Miranda. Um, so, yeah, as you say, f- football academies have become a, a really critical site for identifying and de- developing and, and exporting talented African football players. Uh, and this is particularly the case in Ghana, which, um, which, which developed a, a really strong youth football system in the years after independence. And, and this was kind of tied up with the aspirations of um, Kwame Nkrumah, the, the first president of independent Ghana, who, who aspired to use football as a vehicle for, for nation building and to promote his, his Pan-African message. Um, but but since the 1990s, for, for a variety of reasons, there, there has been an increase in the number of, of export-oriented football academies. But but the, these academies aren't uniform. Um, it, 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 there, there's quite a, a kind of complicated system in Ghana and indeed elsewhere in, in West Africa. So these academies differ in terms of uh, of, of scale, in terms of the facilities, some are, you know, state of the art. Some are. Um, some of these academies are based in in local communities with fairly rudimentary facilities. The coaching provision varies considerably. Some academies are residential; others aren't. Some offer free education as part of an academy place; others don't. Um, some have. I guess wider aspirations in terms of of tackling development related issues, whereas most are entirely focused on producing tradable assets, on on producing young players for for export. Um, and 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 we, as I say, we we see this variety of academy in in Ghana, where you have, you know, academies that range from small scale micro enterprises that are run by by football coaches and and young entrepreneurs who see in football an opportunity for 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 a livelihood um right up to i guess some state-of-the-art facilities um that are operated or have been operated in the past by by european clubs and i suppose two of the most prominent in that regard were academies that were run by um, the dutch club feyenoord um and the Austrian club Red Bull Salzburg. Now both of those academies, um I, I guess and if if you consider their success or otherwise in terms of producing players for the parent club, they they weren't particularly successful. And indeed as a consequence, both of the parent clubs have withdrawn their funding and support for for those uh, academies, and I think that just highlights some of the difficulties involved in, in in I guess the 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 process of producing and developing football players because football players aren't like inert commodities. Um, they are social actors. They are living, breathing, sentient individuals 
They are emotional, they're prone to injury, their aspirations and opportunities are shaped by a whole range of, of actors. So the, the process of producing a, a, a football player um, for the export market is, is, an, is an elongated, very complex process. And certainly there's, there's absolutely no guarantee of success either for a club looking to produce a player or indeed for a, for a player with aspirations to enter an academy, to go through that process of training and developing and, and honing their skills. Um, there's, there, there's absolutely no guarantee at, at the end of that. Um, and indeed, the, the vast majority of those young players who enter into the academy system, their, their aspirations don't translate into reality. The, the reality for the vast majority of these players is is rather than than spatial mobility, it's involuntary immobility um, because they, they they they're deemed not to be good enough. They they can't attract interest from from overseas clubs, and, and I think that also feeds into the process that James described earlier in terms of a, a regular football migration because. Many of these young players will will seek to try their luck in, in a variety of ways, and if if they get a, a an offer of a of a trial from, you know, a, a, a spurious source, you know, they 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 kind of some are willing to 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 take that risk and 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 to to see if it can lead on to a, a an opportunity, a tangible opportunity. Thank you for that. Um, I think there is this idea of uncertainty and opportunity is really quite clear in the discussion about academies. Um, James, is there anything you want to add on this one? Yeah, just to follow up on, on Paul's point um, and your, your point about professionalisation and, and, and scale. I think what Paul articulated really well are the, the challenges of professionalisation when your kind of underlying imperative is to export the players, right? Because it almost creates a, a cycle where because you're sending out your best players elsewhere to other leagues, often the aim is to Europe for financial um, profit, you're then decreasing the quality of players that tend to remain in your in your country, if that makes sense. Um, so therefore the standard doesn't elevate itself. Um, and that again becomes self-defeating because players will then say they want to go and play at a high level with a better opportunity to earn more money. The clubs also want to send their players to place, places where they can get better recompense for, for the player. So it almost becomes a bit of a self-defeating cycle. And that's where Paul's earlier work on kind of dependency theory, um, which is uh, you know a, a theory that's from the 1970s, um, originates from kind of Marxist political economy, talks about the ways in which, to put it quite simply, that the core and periphery become dependent on one another. So if we think of Europe as the core, it's dependent on this, this labour from African context that it often is able to procure cheaper than within Europe at a cheaper rate. At the same time, the African periphery becomes dependent on the income it receives from Europe to sustain itself and to, as, as a way to accrue profit. So it sends its players out to, to, to Europe. Does that make sense, Miranda? And academies, are, yeah. and academies are actually intricately um, implicated in this process. And this is where... Paul, I want to say it's a decade, maybe 15 years ago, Sepp Blatter started to talk about kind of neo-colonialism happening through football academies. And it was very hyperbolic what he, he was saying, and I don't think he understood the nuances and subtleties, um, because as Paul's hinted, within the book we talk about the agency of the players themselves. They're not passive in all of this. The players do have agency. But th- there is something there about a kind of a neo-colonial dynamic that was it emerging between Europe and 
and many parts of Africa in terms of the academy system, how it was working. Um, so yeah, just to kind of add a little bit of context to what Paul just said, and I think for, for our listeners, one thing that we probably, you probably wouldn't think about it, because why would you? But footballers are, are fascinating in the sense that, as Breckenridge kind of highlighted, they're a worker, a unit of labour, a commodity that is traded domestically and internationally, which is quite, quite fascinating. And that's why you had these narratives emerging of footballers saying that they were, in a sense, they were modern slaves. They were slaves, you know, and I'm not saying we should go along the road of that hyperbole, but they are unique in the sense that they are simultaneously a worker for an organisation, they're a unit of labour, and they're a commodity that's able to be traded, which I think is actually quite fascinating thing conceptually to think through in terms of modern forms of labour um, in society. Yeah, um, I'm glad you brought that up because it does get woven throughout the book and, um, as you said, sort of bring up aspects that we maybe don't think about when it comes to football, um, but are very much present. But I want to kind of uh, jump off your answer there, James, and move. Uh, we've sort of been talking about kind of the big picture. Um, now we talk about academies and sort of the institutions. But you do all convincingly in the book talk about the agency and drive from the players. So I want to sort of turn to that um, and ask you both to give us some examples um, and sort of describe how young players, um, perhaps in the academies, perhaps not going through the academy route, how do they conceptualize, understand, and what do they do themselves to realize their aspirations um, to migrate through football? Um, Perhaps, James, because you've just mentioned it, we'll start with you. Yeah, Miranda, I'm happy to to provide a, a, an initial response to that, that question. I'll preface that response by saying that we are talking very much about um, young men and boys. Um, and I think that's something that we might talk about later on. I think the experience of, of girls and women playing football in Africa and migrating through football might be different. But from the perspective of the young men and boys that we've spoken to for, in some cases, decades now, there's a theme we talk about in the book that, you know, we try to weave through consistently this idea of becoming a somebody through football. And I think that's really important when you want to try and understand and conceptualise, um, as you say, the the way they aspire to, to migrate through football. And we think about this by, as you say, looking at the details and minutia of the young people's lives and situating that within the kind of the wider social context in, in, in West Africa in particular, especially notions of kind of neoliberalism and how that's shaping the ways in which young people try to survive and make a living and exist in African context. Now, why does all this matter? It matters because what we try to show in the book is that in, con- in a context where young people are increasingly being encouraged to fend for themselves, you know, where there's a very limited, for a range of reasons, um, primarily the legacies of structural adjustment, where many African countries were encouraged to liberalise their economies, to privatise education and healthcare, Young people are trying to find ways to survive, and they're increasingly being told to find ways to survive that are very individuated and reliant on their ability to maximize their, their, their capital, be that their educational capital, their physical capital. Um, but it's a very individuated way of understanding the world. And football is increasingly being seen as a way to do that. So when I was doing my research in Ghana, um, this was a while ago, but even while then more recently, I was talking to young players, they were saying to me, if you look at our society now, James, if I go to school and get a good degree, the chance of me getting a job, a formal job, are quite limited. Now, why don't I therefore take the risk on play, becoming a footballer, where the opportunities for fortune and fame are quite, are quite big, 
I may not make it, but if I do make it, I'm going to make it big. And if I don't make it, what have I really lost? I'll be back where I would have been anyway had I pursued education. Now, whether I agree with that fully is neither here nor there. It's what the young people we spoke to, that's what they believe. And that kind of taps into wider kind of narrative understanding that I think speaks to situations and conditions outside of West Africa, actually. So we think about the rise of, you know, celebrity culture, um, reality television, um, even something like OnlyFans. I don't know if many of our readers are aware of OnlyFans, that maybe they are. These are ways in which young people are able to speculate on their body, on, on, on themselves, in order to accrue um, financial wealth and capital, often in a way that bypasses formal education. And that also speaks to wider narratives in terms of the desire to migrate. And one thing we try to show in the book is that, in many ways, we're looking at football, but it's just because football happens to be seen as the way at this moment in time that people can realise the ability to move and, and migrate. Because they often, rightly or wrongly, see migration as a way to achieve social mobility. And as Paul already mentioned on, and as I kind of touched on recently, the football industry in West Africa is increasingly geared towards mobility and migration. Yeah? Very few players enter the football industry and very few academies are set up to encourage um, a domestic outlook to stay within Africa or within, oh, sorry, stay within West Africa, stay within the concept more broadly. It's very outwardly orientated. It's a very extroverted approach to, um, to, to society. So they see football as a way to achieve spatial mobility, which they link very strongly to becoming socially mobile. That and, makes a lot of sense. Yes. Um, so, Paul, I don't know if you want to add anything to, to that. We can talk a little bit about family and how that also plays a role later on, but I think in terms of the idea about how they conceptualise um, football and its link to migration, I think I've covered that there. Uh, Paul? Yeah. Paul, do you want yeah. to add anything? Yeah, I mean, I, I I just think James, what your what your answer illustrates is that that young aspiring football players, the whole way through their um, their career, whether whether that's a, a career in terms of entering into an academy and exiting that academy without being able to enact transnational mobility or the opposite that they're able to secure a, a contract with a with a club in Europe but, but I, I think the, these young people think strategically and act in the circumstances that they find themselves in I mean even even the decision to enter into an academy to to kind of embark on the process of pursuing a football career is is one that isn't taken lightly. It's 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 not a case of of these young people being passive victims of circumstance who have very uh, limited options or at least don't think carefully about the decisions that they make. And, and very often they will enter into conversations with with their family members. Um, who will have conflicting perspectives in terms of of what is best for for the young person uh, and also how pursuing particular avenues might in the longer term benefit the broader family um, and even even when decisions are are made by um, by within the context of family units and by young players to enter into the, the suppose the the more formal professionalized academy system. 
even in that context, they they continue to think and reflect and navigate their way through the process. Of course, they, they very quickly realize that in, in many senses, the, the extent to which they're deemed to be a prospect can be dependent on them demonstrating or exhibiting discipline on uh, con uh, exhibiting conformity to what the coaches are asking for. I mean, this is this is referred to in, in the kind of the the, the coaching um, context as 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 coachability. Um, you know, so 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 say they so they they recognise that you know their 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 hopes and dreams and aspirations are sometimes dependent on being compliant. But for others, you know, as particularly as they near the end of their academy experience, so at, at 16, 17, they begin to make more strategic decisions about, about their futures and whether or not their place, having what may be considered to be a privileged place at, a, at an academy where their, their meals are taken care of, where their education is taken care of, um, where they have access to good facilities. Um, but they start to make decisions about whether or not that is in their best interest moving forward. And and I, I had a, a number of conversations with with um, with academy players nearing the end of their their stay in an, at an academy where they they wanted to to leave. Um, they they felt that their opportunities were actually being constricted by being part of a particular uh, uh, academy. Um, so I, I think all of that just speaks to the fact that, that these young people are, are not are not passive in in, in the in the in the process. They they are not just commodities that are fashioned and and exported. They are as I said earlier, they are living sentient social actors who who think strategically and navigate their way through the process. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Thank you both for um, sort of illuminating some of that. Um, and I know, James, you mentioned briefly sort of the idea of family ties, that sometimes that can um, it try and uh, change what young players might be aiming for. Uh, sort of think about, sort of say, think about the longer term, not the short term. Um, but that that sort of calculation um, can be quite strategic and can is significantly influenced by the sort of economic conditions um, and structures of a lot of these countries um, that what something on the surface might seem like sort of a naive child's dream um, does actually have a lot of um, agency and strategy built into it and a lot of often kind of quite clear-eyed ideas about what alternatives might be. Um, but I wanted to 
kind of, if you don't mind, pick up on this idea that Paul's just mentioned that is uh, emphasized in the book as well, the idea of coachability um, and the idea of conformity. Um, and that you deal in the book how this is a thing generally in sport, in football, uh, we talk about coaches, but also in this particular context, both in the academies, um, but also if players are successfully able to become mobile. Um, but I was particularly interested in the academies. It goes back to James, what you were saying earlier about the kind of export mindedness of the academies. They're not preparing players to play domestically. This idea of coachability and race um, and how these two things sort of emphasize each other, um, exacerbate each other, racism particularly. So I was wondering if you could sort of explain how that works given the frame of these extrovert, export-focused academies. Um, don't know which of you wants to start with that one. Yeah, I'm happy to, to kick things off and you know, Paul can can chip in afterwards, I'm sure. Um, it's, it's a really, really great question, Miranda. And one thing that I'll start with, maybe I'll think about the, the Ghanaian context to begin with. Um, Paul made a really, really interesting insight there in terms of this idea of coachability um, and plays wanted to conform. But at the same time, there's a different type of, conform, type of conforming taking place in terms of what they think the black body is capable of doing and being. And so one thing that really struck me um, were, were narratives that I heard in, in Ghana, but also when I did fieldwork in Paris with West African youth who had experienced human trafficking, was a narrative about we're naturally good at football. You know, West Africans, we naturally have the ability to, to, to play. And these forms of racial, racial narratives and, and tropes that they attached to themselves, um, but they did so in a way that they saw as quite empowering. But what I found quite fascinating is the ways in which sometimes those narratives can, I wouldn't say come into conflict, but that you can have tensions within academies. So for example, there's one club that I, I spent a long time working with, and there's a club where they had lots of coaches who come from Europe and, and volunteer to help help the club out. And often I hear the coaches talking about the players in in quite, quite racialized terms in terms of, you know, um, you know, they're too aggressive, they're lacking discipline, all these kind of stereotypes, they're, they're a bit too childish, we need to focus more on their technique, all these kind of tropes and narratives that are often attributed to, to African African bodies. Um, so then to hear the other the players from the other side talking about other forms of racialisation, the way they characterise their body was was incredibly, um, for, for me as a scholar, it's very interesting and fascinating to hear these, these, these dual forms of racialisation taking place. But one thing, and this is where it's great to work with, with colleagues, that Paul's really good at doing when we had these conversations about what we were seeing and what we thought it meant, is that Paul also kind of teased out the fact that some of the points that they're making about the African players are comments that you hear at academies in, in England. You know, the importance of discipline, um, of you know, technique. So, so to, to some extent, they're sometimes compounded and perhaps exacerbated by the kind of the racialization of the African body. But it also speaks this broader discussion around preparing that body to function and work and be, in many sense, saleable in that European context. Um, and if I just speak very briefly, because right in the book we talk about experiences within Europe, and here we hear stories about players who, you know, that they arrive at a club um, and they become very, very conscious that you know, the playing style within a particular nation, um, as they saw it, might have been at odds with how they had been accustomed to playing in, in that country of origin. So there's, there's, there's some really nice examples of a place where they say, you know, in my country, in, 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 in West Africa, 
we try to play football that's more technique based and you know um, short passes along the ground dribbling that encourages tight ball control when we got to Europe they wanted to play the long ball you know and for them they found that quite 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 challenging because on the one hand African players are seen as being you know lacking discipline technique this that and the other and they're saying actually we wanted to play a more refined form of football than we're finding in Europe and because we couldn't adapt to that style we sometimes were, were released from from a club um, and again that just shows the kind of the ways in which a player's career can take a, an unfortunate turn just had that same player ended up in a different country for example where the playing well the stereotypical playing style suited their their style of playing football they could have excelled but unfortunately for them they ended up a place where it, it didn't excel so well but to your initial point that the racialization um, really did, does come through in terms of both how the players see themselves, which I think is really important. It's often overlooked that, you know, in, in many, in lots of scenarios, um, black and African players were engaged in a form of self, what we call in the book, self-charismatization, where they, they racialize themselves through certain stereotypes and tropes, as well as having to conform to certain stereotypes and tropes through the academy system and through training at, at various clubs at um, the semi-professional level. But Paul, I don't think you want to add anything to that. Yeah, well, uh, I think that's really, I, I want to just kind of sort of emphasize that point, uh, James, that you've made, because it really does speak to the goals of the book of highlighting kind of the structures that um, make that players have to sort of interact with and attempt to succeed under, but also the idea that players engage with it as well, that it's almost a dialogue of these two different things, that it's not just things imposed upon or enacted upon the players, but their own ideas um, and how they think about encountering these things really shape their experiences too. So um, thank you for sort of discussing both sides of that and kind of helping us understand the nuance. Paul, is there anything you want to add on that point? I mean, just just very quickly and, and just really to emphasise um, James's point about the the kind of conflicting racialized narratives that young African players and, and academies are are exposed to. Um, you know, very very often they they can be exposed to um, to, to white European coaches who have um, very racialized understandings of the capabilities of young African black football players. Um, but but at other times, I mean, I I've certainly encountered um, um, white coaches who who are who are much more enlightened in in their attitudes and who I suppose are 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 keen to provide an opportunity for for the game to be played in in different ways and for for individual players to bring their individual capabilities and skills and attributes to to the game but of course that th- this i i think this creates a lot of confusion in the minds of <clears throat> young african academy players you know on the one hand they're being told that they that they lack um discipline that they need to conform to particular patterns of play if they aspire to be successful and yet on the other, very often, you know, in the same academy, if they're exposed to a different age level coach, that coach might be talking to them about, you know, use your natural ability in terms of your trickiness and your skill and, and all of that sort of stuff. So it, it's kind of discombobulating for, for, for these young young players. And I, and I think 
that is one of the issues that feeds into the fact that you know for for many african migrant players their their careers abroad are are actually quite stunted they they are quite short um, for a variety of reasons and i and i think one of those reasons is that they are they they're exposed to 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 coaches and and managers who who have different expectations of them and and they 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 can struggle to adapt to particular ways of playing the game particular playing styles that makes a lot of sense. Um, so I, I kind of want to talk then about this. We've sort of looked at the um, overall structures. We've looked at some of the kind of numbers um, and the sort of how players think about this idea and the academy is moving towards this idea of playing um, beyond Africa. But you then detail in the book a number of stories. You sort of mentioned a few already of what actually happens to these players if they do manage to become um, transnationally mobile for football. So um, obviously the book has a lot of detail about the many, many different ways that this can go. Um, But I was wondering if maybe you could each introduce us to one or two particular players and examples to sort of show us what this might look like. Um, I know, for example, I'd love to, there's an example you have in the book about a player that goes to Thailand. Um, There's another one that goes to Denmark. Um, But I'm wondering if maybe you could each introduce us to one or two to describe in a little bit more detail what these sort of different trajectories look like and the things that the factors that can impact, as Paul, you've just said, the sort of stunted um, potential opportunities for a lot of these players. Um, Paul, maybe starting with you. Yeah, I mean, I think both of those um, those examples that you that you suggested that that we talk about are are, are actually. Based on on Christian's um, research, and it's it, it's a shame that he he wasn't able to 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 join us. But I, I mean, I, th- I think in general terms, um, as I say, there there are a whole variety of of factors and processes that impact on the experiences of of those players who are able to enact transnational mobility through football. Um, and and very often these processes and experiences are encountered by by regular um, migrants and, and they include things like you know adjusting to different cultural contexts to 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 the weather um, to food um, to being apart from family I mean I I know that you know in this era of, of modern technology that players can keep in regular contact with with family but i i recall having some conversations with migrant players about um about how they maintain connections with family back home and their extended networks and and they talked about the use of technology but but many spoke about very often that making things more difficult making their experiences more difficult for them because they it kind of you know seeing somebody on a screen kind of reinforced the distance between the 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 individuals um and 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 this this created um you know as as could create a sense of loneliness of of feeling homesick um and then of course you have all of the the kind of demands and and uncertainties of of playing professional football uh, i mean Football is, is is an absolutely ruthless business. If if you're not performing in the way that 
you're expected to. Um, your, your opportunities can become constrained and if you're not playing regularly, you're not visible. Um, your opportunity for securing a, 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 or extending your contract becomes constrained. There's the, the, the possibility of, of injury. Um, so so I, th I think all of these sorts of factors coalesce to create a, a, a difficult environment for African migrant players. Um, you know, some clubs provide a, a lot of support for players, but of course that's entirely dependent on resource. And the vast majority of African migrant players are, are not the Mo Salas and, and Sadio Manes, um, but rather they are playing in fairly, you know, low level professional leagues where resource is 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 an issue and, and I think that compounds some of the challenges that they experience. That makes a lot of sense. Thank you. James, do you want to come in? Yeah, I guess I'll I'll try and give a, a, a an anecdote, I guess, or a vignette from from the book using the case of one of the players we worked with called called Isaac. So Isaac was a really talented, promising Ghanaian own player. He'd made the under 17 national team. And while playing for the national team, one of the well, coaches, or shall, shall we say, said he could put Isaac in touch with somebody who could get him a move to, to Thailand to play football. And Isaac thought this is an opportunity to, to migrate. Again, looking back to what we said earlier on about how young people associate migration and spatial mobility with social mobility, um, opportunity to earn, earn an income. Um, so he, he, he moved over to, to Thailand. He, he met up with the agent and he and a group of Ghanaian players went to Thailand. Now, when he arrived, things were not as he expected. Um, so they didn't actually have trials with as many clubs as they would have liked. They ended up, all, I think there were five or six boys um, sharing one room together. Isaac had very little money. There were times he'd go to bed hungry, nothing to eat. And he had a really tough time for the first few months. Now, during this time, the agent promised Isaac and the players, I'll get you something, I'll get you something. And eventually that didn't materialise. Isaac did manage to, to get a place with a, a, a club at a decent level. But when he did so, Isaac was earning around €600 Euros a month. And for the first six months or so, he had to give 500 of those euros to the agent who got him the position at the club. So again, that precarious precarity, even when he got the contract to the club, continued and ensued. And just to flag to our readers that 600 euros might not seem like much, but a study by FIFPRO, um, I think it was around 2016, with over 14,000 players globally, found that average salary for a football player was 400 US dollars per month. So 600 euros a month isn't actually that, that un, you know, um, unrealistic. or It's not an outlier. And again, that kind of shows you the disparities in, in what we see in the football industry. We have some players who are earning upwards of 200,000 euros a week, and Isaac is earning 625 euros a month. So you can also start to see why the players gravitate and aspire to try and play football in the in Europe, for example, in the more lucrative leagues. I now, thought that was a really good example, um, and I'm, I'm glad you kind of brought that up because it does make it sort of sound ridiculous to go, wait, five boys going over to Thailand, all staying in a room, going to bed hungry, and then actually put into this context, it's like, okay that makes more sense of sort of the strategy of why people aspire to this. Um, do you want to, do you have more on this you want to no, share? Just to say that you've really touched an important point there, Miranda, that you know, Isaac saw Thailand as a stepping stone, as an opportunity to move out of um, West Africa, 
go to Thailand and hopefully use that as a way to, to move to another more lucrative league. Unfortunately for Isaac, and I don't know if irony is the right word here, but in moving to Thailand, he stopped, he lost the visibility at the Ghanaian national level. So that the, he no longer played for the, you know, the under-17 Ghana national team, under-18, under-21s, etc. So actually, he, he lost some quite significant visibility that might have helped him to progress his career. But Isaac's decision wasn't one that he made alone. You know, obviously his family, wider social network, were also reliant on the income they thought he could potentially accrue by moving to Thailand. So again, it reinforced this point that these are not decisions made in isolation. And, and also, just to very briefly add that some of the players, yes, they want the fame, the fortune and riches, but often they want to do so not just for themselves, but to support their wider family and social network. So this theme of giving back to your society, giving back to your family, really kind of came through. And in the book, we have this idea of what we call speculative reciprocity, um, where often players and families are speculating on, on the young players and this aspiration of making it through football in the hope that through doing so, the player will be able to reciprocate the care support they've given them as they made their way up through the um, football industry back to their local community and to their immediate family. So then what are the sorts of things that happen to players that maybe do are able to go abroad um, for football to some degree? Um, but then obviously for any footballer, your career ends at some point. Um, Paul, you've already mentioned sort of injury style of play. Um, obviously, we can also add like changes in management. Um, resource is a huge issue. Um, so it can be factors absolutely beyond a footballer's control. Um, but what happens to um, especially these West African players who hope to go transnational do go to some degree abroad um, and then their football career is over. What are some of the things that kind of, what 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 happens next? James? Yeah, so this is an area of the book that we really enjoyed exploring because there isn't that much work on post-playing career um, and how players make that transition from a playing career to, I guess, in many cases, a non-playing career. And in the book, we kind of tease out and identify a couple of the, what we'd say the key scenarios that were emerging in the data that we were able to gather from speaking to, to um, yeah, tens of, of footballers who, who retired. One of the big ones that came through, or a key thing that came through, is that lots of the players hadn't actually prepared for the, the, their playing career to come to an end. And again, if we look back to kind of studies done by FIFPRO, where, as I said, they spoke to something like 14,000 players globally, they found that three quarters of the players they surveyed didn't have any qualifications or any kind of, sorry, non-football qualifications. So when they ended their playing careers, they often struggled to find something to do next. And that's what we found a lot of the African players, that many of them then had to almost start anew. Um, so we have examples of players who started to end up working as, you know, delivery drivers, nurses, um, all kinds of professions that aren't necessarily related to football. But you also have those who try and find a way to stay in the game. So another key kind of career path for players post and playing is to become a coach. Um, and a lot of players, as you kind of hinted there, it may happen earlier in their career where they're in their mid-20s. We had one player who had a serious injury. His playing career kind of came to an end, but he wanted to, to stay in the game. So he chose um, coaching as a, as a way forward. And, and I want to just flag a point here that you start to see how kind of racial dynamics come into play that limit the ability of, of African players in, in particular to progress through coaching and managerial structures in the global game. So in an African context, when you get your coaching badges and they're endorsed by CAF, um, that's the, the FIFA regional body um, 
um, the Obis Confederation for, for Africa. Those qualifications are not recognized in Europe. So if you were to you know, retire, return back, or end your playing career, go back to your country of origin in Africa, do your coaching badges to become a coach, the qualifications that you gain through your coaching in Africa, they don't translate in the global um, labor market, if that makes sense. Um, so that, that limits in many ways the ability for African players to progress through coaching um, structures um, globally. And then another thing that we, we found that um, players were doing is setting up academies. So they sometimes they do this for what they would say altruistic reasons. They want to have academies that are more education-focused. Often, as I just said, they often find that during their playing career, education was something that wasn't really pursued as well as, it, as much as it should have been. They try to set up academies that have a more educational um, social justice dimension to them in terms of supporting young people, poverty alleviation in, in local communities. But they're also the flip side to those who set these academies up for that export-orientated dynamic where they want to have academies as a way to accrue um, um, a, a profit and, and a livelihood. And then I guess there is the the final thing. Well, there's a couple more, but one that I'll end on now is the more kind of entrepreneurial um, retired player. And these are players where they might have been able to accrue quite substantial wealth um, in their playing career. And they build homes back in their country origin for their, themselves and their family, but also invest in businesses, um, both in Ghana and also internationally. Um, so I guess those are some, I guess, a typology of some of the key things that we see in post-playing careers. But one thing I'd want to just end by emphasizing is that a lot of players don't end their careers on their terms. I think that's a really important message I want the readers to, to kind of leave, sorry, listeners to leave with, is that in the book we try to really emphasize the point that this precarity that many of the players go through during their playing career translates into their post-playing career lives, and many of them don't end their careers on their terms. Um, and I like, there is one more final thing I'd say that I found quite humorous, and I think Paul and Krista did also, is that many of the players have quite elongated careers where they might try and play onto their mid-30s, maybe into their late 30s, and they do so based on kind of narratives of you know, Didier Drogba, Michael Essie, and players who, you know, managed to play quite late on into their you know, into that late 30s, early 40s. And again, that plays to narratives about the African body and the fact that African players are stronger, they can last longer in their careers. And of course, Drogba and Essien are outliers. The majority of players globally do not play until they're in the, into their 40s. Um, so I just thought I'd just share that, 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 that point. So it's one that I don't think people think through or think about so often. Yeah, I think that's um, really helpful to kind of explain the different sort of trajectories and typology, as you said, um, but it was really clear throughout the book, sort of, as we've done a bit of a tour of all of it now, um, that this idea of precarity and uncertainty really is incredibly pervasive throughout the entire time, from getting into an academy to staying in an academy to um, being able to go abroad at some point after an academy um, to what that career looks like, you know, the six-month contract, the season-long contract, the um, sort of training, but are you going to get onto first team and get any visibility um, and then how often a lot of these um, situations were factors well beyond what players could choose. Um, and yet through that, such a strong sense of kind of agency and strategy on the part of the players trying to make the most of these um, circumstances that in many ways are quite stacked against them. As you just mentioned in that example, James, the idea that um, coaching certifications are not recognized 
um, outside of Africa. Uh, the book details a number of other kind of ways in which like different EU laws create visa incentives that do and don't help players, etc. Um, so obviously we don't we can't cover the entire every detail of the book in the interview, um, but this should hopefully give listeners a taste for the complexities and the nuances of these different stages of uncertainty and yet how players um, attempt to kind of still have agency and engage with them quite actively. Um, so as we move towards the kind of end of the interview, uh, James, you've just mentioned something that you all found that you were sort of amused by. Um, and I'm wondering if you could each share something, um, given how intensive a research process was, how many pieces there were involved, um, maybe something each of you found surprising um, that you came across during the process. Uh, maybe it's not even something that made it into the book. Paul, if I can start with you. Yeah, Miranda, you, you, you're absolutely right to say that it was a, <clears throat> I mean, writing this book was a fairly in, intensive um, process, particularly in, in the latter stages. And, and I think one of the, I suppose, biggest things that has surprised me is the fact that James, Christian and I are still talking to one another. Um, <laughs> I mean, as I say, there, there, there were a, a lot of late nights um, and I think if anything was going to find cracks in, in our uh, professional and personal relationship, it, it, it was going to be a, a lack of sleep. But we, we survived it and there was... There was, of course, never a crossword in the in the whole process. Um, but I, I think, I mean, from from my perspective, something that um, that was maybe surprising in in some senses, or, or at least that always struck me. Um, usually, when I returned from periods of fieldwork um, in in Ghana, was really the the willingness of the participants in the research to give of their time so freely and generously and to share, you know, quite kind of, you know, personalized um, information about their hopes and their dreams or desires, their, their, their aspirations. And, and this was particularly the case with the, the, the countless young players that I, I spoke with. Um, I, I mean, they, they didn't know me. They certainly weren't obliged to speak with me, but they 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 gave of their time really freely, and they welcomed me on occasion into their their family homes, and I and I think this was the this was the case with with James and Christian as well in, in their field work, and really with without that sort of generosity and the willingness of our participants to share their insights and their patience as I kind of grappled to make sense of what they were telling me and probably asked a lot of stupid questions. But, you know, with, without all of that, this book would never have been written. And I, I really do hope that the book accurately captures their hopes and perspectives and, and presents um, a fairly uh, nuanced picture of, of these. Lovely. Thank you. Um, James? Oh, thanks. In, in terms of something that surprised me that did it or that didn't make into the book um i think we've actually been quite good at trying to like, get as much into the book as we as we possibly can while keeping it coherent but i guess one thing that surprised me and i guess that we didn't really talk about so much in in the book um there wasn't really a space to it's not really surprised but i think it's just something that i think is significant is that as i tried to hint earlier on i think looking african football migration allows us to kind of think to understand some kind of broader societal issues. And I think one of the things that really struck me about, about the book, um, especially working with Christian and Paul on it, is, is thinking through 
um, the, the issues associated with who gets to move and in what times they get to move. Um, because as you kind of hinted at Miranda, we talk in the book about the ways in which seemingly innocuous regulations that seem to be fair to everybody can impact African football players in quite profound and, 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 and problematic ways. So a very, a very simple one might be, for example, FIFA has regulations that um, prevent minors from, from moving internationally. There are loopholes, as we talk about in the book, but generally speaking, um, FIFA's regulations say that players under age of 18 are not allowed to move internationally to, to play footballs unless you meet certain um, criteria. Now, what that doesn't really touch is the fact that in Europe, that isn't actually quite true. Because of European law, players are actually able to move internationally under the age of 18 because if they weren't able to, we'd basically be breaking, FIFA would be breaking EU laws around freedom of movement. But what that means is that if you're a player in Africa, um, your options to move and migrate to potentially improve your access to certain training facilities and opportunities are curtailed in a way that don't hold true for your European peers. Does that make sense, Miranda? So, so, so I think one of the things that, that I found quite surprising as we did the research for this book was just kind of hearing about these subtleties and, and nuances and regulations and how they impact African players and African people in particular ways. And of course, that reads, feeds into broader narratives around migration that we're seeing in society at the moment, you know, so... Um, yeah, I, I guess for me that would be the big one, is just thinking through how these regulations have a, um, a disproportionate impact um, negatively on, on Af- the African migrant. Yeah, I thought that was uh, one of the sections that was uh, particularly strong, showing off your three ability to write clearly, um, because that particular section you explained some really complicated and also probably quite dry European laws and intersection of legal issues and also showed the kind of human impact on particular um, players that you were able to discuss in these in who were impacted in these ways. Um, and it was quite impressive, really, that you managed to write both about both of these subjects that are quite different in terms of kind of re- how you research them, how people often write about them, and yet they were really coherently brought together and incredibly clear without going, oh, this is the dry section. Oh, this is the human interest section. Um, it was all woven together really well. Um, so from a reader's point of view, that was a particularly um, appreciated section to understand this nuance um, in a very kind of accessible way. Um, and to sort of close up the interview, I was wondering if you could each perhaps give us a little preview of what you each might be working on next, um, starting with James this time, I think. Yeah, I'm happy to kick it off. So in a weird way, um, what I want to do next is something that I wanted to do about 10 years ago when I finished my PhD. Was it 10 years ago? There thereabouts. Um, I've just never managed to, to get the funding or the headspace to think it through. But I'm really fascinated by this idea of risk. Um, so when I was looking at human trafficking in the football industry, one of the things I was really fascinated by was how the young people conceptualize risk and how their conceptualizations of risk actually confound um, what human trafficking policy tends to think people will do and why they do them. So I'm actually just fascinated by this idea of how the young people kind of conceptualize risk and uh, their strategies to mediate risk. So in the book, we talk about spirituality um, and, and how they, they see causality through very fascinating lenses and how they incorporate ideas of, you know, spiritual support. Um, I guess you could call it, yes, yeah, spirituality to, to guide them and, and help them navigate these very precarious contexts, right? Because when you're working in an industry that is so precarious, where actually your ability to make it could be 
curtailed by something as simple as spraining your ankle during the trial. Therefore, you can't impress, you know, that pressure leads young people to think about risk and to mitigate and manage risk in really fascinating ways. So that's what I'd like to do. I want to do that for the last 10 years. <laughs> I haven't been able to, to find the headspace to do it, but that's probably what I'm going to try and do next if I can. Cool. Well, that definitely would um, build on this work, I think, very clearly. We didn't really talk about that aspect of the book in the interview, um, but listeners who are interested, there's a whole section that talks about kind of how these players think about luck um, and chances and opportunity and what sort of practices and beliefs they um, pursue to sort of make them more possible. So I think that sounds really interesting. Paul, what about you? Well, I, I think that one of the one of the limitations of the book, which I mean we, we haven't spoken about, but it is it's the fact that it focuses on male footballers uh, exclusively. And when we submitted the pro- proposal, it was it was our intention to incorporate the experiences of female African footballers. Um, I mean, there, there is already a small but really important body of work on this issue, but we felt that more was needed in order to, to understand the gendered particularities of African football migration, not least because the, the growing professionalization and media coverage of the women's game in Europe is, is likely but potentially it could widen opportunities and shape aspirations of young girls and women in Africa to pursue a career in the game. So we we, we had very much intended to 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 incorporate um, female African footballers into our analyses and and, and I I'd already as as I think it's 2015-2016, I'd done some interviews with um, young female footballers at a, at a football academy in Ghana and had followed up with them in Sweden a, a couple of years later. But of course, COVID kicked in and that that impacted on, um, on our ability to engage in further field research. So we, we kind of talked long and hard about the implications that that would have for the book and our aspiration to incorporate female players and we we, we just decided that because of the, the the lack of primary empirical data that we we would focus exclusively on on male players um, so we we intend to rectify that and we, we're actually the three of us are about to start work on an article that explores the aspirations, experiences, and, and trajectories of African female players, and and beyond that, I mean, I I would very much hope that that article is a, is a starting point for uh, for for a much bigger project. Also, very cool. Um, it sounds like you're both sort of taking the things from this book and expanding them further, um, which I think will be fascinating. Um, but while you go off and expand, listeners can read the book as it currently exists. Um, There's plenty to get into, uh, some of which we've touched on, some of which we've not been able to. So if you're interested, please do read the full book titled African Football Migration, Aspirations, Experiences and Trajectories, published by Manchester University Press this year, 2022. Um, And we've had two of the three authors with us today. The three authors, Dr. Paul Darby, thank you very much. Dr. James Essen, thank you very much. And Dr. Christine Ungry, who we've not been able to hear from, unfortunately, uh, but nevertheless was a great contributor to the book. So thank you for sharing your time and expertise with us. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Miranda. Thanks for having us, Miranda.
the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.